class. Please be quiet. Shh. Shh. Any special message for all the kids watching at home? Stay out of trouble. Welcome to the RPG Academy Network presents Film Studies. Welcome classroom for a new film studies. I am Kalum and I will be your teacher of foreign cinema. Today, we will be talking about Black Cat, White Cat, a movie from 1998 by the Serbian director Emir Kostarika. Let's take attendance and see who's joining us today. So my name is B. Zelda. I am typically known as a member of the Broadswords, uh, all-woman non-binary D&D podcast. I am also a member of another podcast called Facades of Gods, like a noir fate core-esque. I spend a lot of time streaming on Twitch on the Broadswords channel, as well as guesting on a handful of other shows like this one. So I'm happy to be here. What sort of teacher would you be? Oh no. Can I just say gym teacher? Sure. Like, I mean, for uh, those who can't teach, teach gym. Physical education is an important part of the growth of all younglings. So However, no, yeah, I would only teach them yoga because that's all I know. So these kids would be able to touch their toes and, like, they could, like, make their hands touch from behind their back. Can't do that still. But kids got it down. I think yoga is a thing which is being developed in the educational system of a few countries. And it's a great thing. Scott, <laughs> what's your opinion on that? And can you introduce yourself? Howdy, all you kids out there in Radio Land. I am Scott. I use he, him pronouns. And I am part of a fun podcast called Lawful and Orally. We also stream our recordings live on Twitch. We have a dedicated audience that's just slightly smaller than our dedicated performers. And we deliver a heartbreaking shows every week. So go ahead and tune in once. Like everybody else, it'll be great. Otherwise, I'm delighted to be back here on Film Studies, one of my favorite podcasts to listen to because of how much I love Calum and also film. Oh, thank you so much. And what type of teacher were you last time? Oh, I can't remember what I was last time. <laughs> I think uh, this time I would be a geography teacher. Mm. Strictly states and capitals. Because once you learn that, it's pretty set, right? It's not like physics. You have to keep relearning stuff or biology, right? You don't have to update that textbook. Geography, you're, you're pretty much, you're pretty good, right? U.S. states also. So you don't have to go through complicated things like the things today of being a former Yugoslavia director, now being presented as a Serbian director, but who still identifies a lot as a Yugoslavian, I believe. Yes. That was very poignant, though. Like, wow. <laughs> that was an excellent transfer from yeah, a geography teacher to like, hey, here's some history facts. Yeah, we, we had the crossing of borders with this movie. And at the same time, we are nowhere. So, uh, yeah, it's quite interesting. But uh, going back to this movie, some content warning. This movie has a little bit of nudity, quite a bit of violence, quite a lot of profanity, and a vast amount of alcohol and drugs consumption. It also has, again on film studies, some victimization of women. And uh, yeah, I find it depressing slash upsetting. You know, I'm going through those movies, which are movies which I enjoyed as a, as a kid or a teenager or 20-something. And it's scary that most of them, if not all of them, uh, have this in them. And it's terrifying how much you did not notice as a kid. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. That's a bit. That's like, what stands out. 
It didn't even mm-hmm. stand out. It was just normal at the time. Yeah. I guess if you look on the bright side of things, hopefully things are different now for someone like my son who grew up hopefully in a better environment. But uh, that's very troubling. Hmm. Anyway, the show itself should not have any explicit language. I don't think it's the style of my co-host today. Heck right. <laughs> Heck yeah. <laughs> so, going into all traditions, one of my favorite ones, could each of you tell me what's your one-sentence review slash tagline for this movie, as well as your five-stars rating? Uh, well, yeah, I'll uh, go ahead and kick that off. I think my one-sentence summary is, everyone gets who they deserve. Oh, <laughs> no many stars? You know, I would give this an even four out of a 5.2 star scale. 5.2? Oh. I don't know. It just, <laughs> you can't have both numbers even, right? There has to be some sort of irritating fraction of course. in there. I'm a geography teacher. I gotta <laughs> spice it up somehow. <laughs> That's right. Live from the gym hall, what's your one sentence review and uh, rating? Over here in the gym, I'm thinking, I do definitely agree with the four star rating. Like, there was just so much that. I, there was no way I wasn't entertained with the film. And a term that I recently learned as like an all-encompassing word is fiasco. You know, a fiasco is something that is planned and then goes catastrophically wrong. So I don't know if I just want to simply call my blurb is just fiasco or fiasco wedding. Nice. My own tagline is, what's up with all the geese? <laughs> because that's something my wife said as we were I wonder the that same movie. thing! <laughs> so many! So many, right? Endless keys. And they turn out to be multifunctional towards the end of the movie. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And my rating is three and a half. And uh, explaining just that a little bit, it might have been the conditions in which I rewatched this movie this week, but yeah, the magic did not quite work as well as the other many, many times I watched it in the early 2000s, etc. This movie was really a cult movie among me and my friends, especially when I was studying architecture. I know, I guess it's sort of arty, so everyone really enjoyed the bohème side of things. This time, I sort of had trouble getting out of a third-person point of view on the movie, so I was not carried away as I used to, which uh, is a bit of a pity. So, But yeah, let's be honest about it. So, three and a half? I think it's fair on my side. I think that's reasonable. Time for the sometimes tedious exercise of making a summary of the movie. Sorry, uh, by the way, in advance for all the mispronunciation of the Bulgarian, Roma, and Serbian names. Matko, played by Bajram Severjdan, and his teenage son Zare, played by Florijan Adjini, live in a ramshackle house by the Danube River. They survive one small smuggling mischief after another. This might soon be over, thanks to Matko's latest idea, stealing a wall train of smuggled fuel. This, however, requires a loan, which Matko obtains by visiting Grega Pitish, a wheelchair-bound old gangster who is an old friend of Matko's father. The plan requires also the help of Dadan Karambolo, a rich, obnoxious, drug-snorting gangster who juggles grenades and mistreats everyone around him. In a predictable fashion, Dadan double-crosses Matko. Unable to pay his loan and new debts to Dadan, Matko is offered a deal. The debts will be forgiven if Matko's son, Zare, marries Dadan's sister, Aphrodita, (gasps) who is the subject of much mockery and bullying due to her short height. That's it. 
Just for being short. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> It's so mean with her. Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, Zari courts the free-spirited Ida, played by Branka Katish. Ida is a nonchalant but perky barmaid who helps her grandmother at a rather chaotic riverside permanent fair slash leisure resort. Zari and Ida later find out not only about the plans to get Zari married to Aphrodita, but also that Ida's grandmother is selling her off as a bride to Dadan. Meanwhile, the old gangster Grega Pitish is having problems of his own. His six-foot-plus giant grandson, Grega Veliki, is still not married. The son only wants to marry someone he would love at first sight, like in a fairy tale. The old gangster laments that he might die before seeing his son married. Despite all attempts and side plots I am ignoring, the very colorful and tumultuous wedding ceremony between Zare and Aphrodita proceeds. However, the bride runs away mid-ceremony, pursued by Dadan, Matko and Dadan's criminal cronies. Meanwhile, Rega Veliki is driving his father to Matko's house so that they may visit the grave of Zare's grandfather. Wasn't actually dead, but is now dead, but not really. Sorry, that's the side plot I skipped. Aphrodita, who's quite a stealthy fleeing bride, stumbles across Grega Veliki. The couple falls instantly in love. The young Grega forces Dadan at gunpoint to have the wedding nullified. The next day, it's Grega and Aphrodita's turn to have a wedding ceremony. Zari and Ida flee in a small boat. There, they force, at gunpoint, an official to marry them, with a black cat and a white cat as witnesses. They make their way to a German riverboat where Zare reveals a fistful of cash, which was stashed in his grandfather's accorded. Another side plot I ignored. The couple sails towards Bulgaria, according to IMDB. For the no-alive grandparents, they were dead but are not anymore. Side plot. This is the beginning of a wonderful friendship. Another side plot I ignored. <laughs> the end. Perfect. That's that's a perfect summary. <laughs> It was. That was a tough one. Especially the addition of the cats. So it was good because the cats were an important subplot just by existing. It's true. They were like Chekhov's gun, right? They were on the wall right from the first, and the movie's named after them. Mm-hmm. And you're like, I got to keep my eye on these cats. But it was a real <laughs> slow burn. They just kept building. To it was. The cats. There was a reference where it's like, oh. They're bad luck. And I found out today they are mentioned in the song which is in the movie. Mm. Mm. In the song Pitbull Terrier, they are mentioned. I love that song too. It's so catchy every time it's on screen. Pitbull Terrier. Pitbull Terrier. Yeah, I can't get enough of it. It's it's a classic. It's, it's an absolute classic. And I love the actors like hand motion that always goes with that. Because then later in the movie, when he's doing that hand motion, you're just singing the song to yourself yep. in your head. You know it. And he could just walk around like with yep. his two little fists, like pump, pump, pump. Yep. So I looked up for trivia about this, and the MDB page is completely empty. Oh, <laughs> oh no! <laughs> Which was one of the reasons I was like. Wait a second, this movie is completely unknown uh, away from Europe. Wow. I was concerned about that. But yeah, I thought that the Pitbull song came from somewhere and they would include it in the movie, like they included Money, Money by ABBA, another American song. But looking up for the lyrics, I found out a version by D. Antwoord, which is a, I don't know how you describe that. Uh, first of all, it's a band which is in District 9 and much more featured in Chappie from uh, the director, what's his name? Um, Neil Blomkamp? 
Neil Blomkamp, that's it. So when I saw that, I said, okay, it's a song by The Antwerp. No, no, The Antwerp, like seven years later, covered the song. But the song was written for this movie by the director of the movie and uh, oh my the composer of the movie, <sighs> who have this band called The Emir Costa Rica and No Smoking Orchestra, which I saw live and were very popular again among sort of snobbish architecture students in the early 2000. But uh, <laughs> That's a very specific audience. Isn't there. it? <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> but I was right in the middle of it. And when you're in the middle of it, you feel like everybody feels like that. Mm-hmm. But thankfully, uh, it seems, according to your rating, that you both enjoyed this movie to some extent. What were the things moment you liked and didn't like about Black Cat, White Cat? I mean... Oh gosh, the the cocaine addict was, I mean, at the exception of that one song, he, no redeeming qualities, and every time he was on screen, he was just so much coked up energy. <laughs> yeah. That it was. Yeah, he, he was so irredeemably slimy. Yeah. <laughs> just an endless well of, well, what else bad could this character do? <laughs> How can I resent you even more? Uh, oh, well, there you go. You smacked a woman. Yeah. And they set him up so badly. I was amazed he didn't, like, his comeuppance in the movie was sort of like a schoolyard prank rather than a gangster-level violent act. Yes. Which, given how many gangsters and how many guns we saw in this movie, I I kind of assumed he'd get shot. Right. But I think in the end, as it goes with my one-line summary, he got what he deserved because he got who he deserved. (laughs) Which is the other character who consistently did not realize he was a bad person and would fall for his stuff Every single time. Even after he <laughs> knew he'd been cheated by this guy. Mm-hmm. Just go right back. <laughs> <laughs> also not a likable character. <laughs> it's true. Yeah. When the movie opening has you playing poker with yourself and losing. Yep. And then shouting at your son. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, yeah. not not <laughs> that really set yeah. the tone. Yeah, we we all know who you are at that point. <laughs> you had a really crazy energy. For people who are listening to this without Picture, I guess, a Balkan Joker, I guess, somehow. But Joker more like the... I guess like Joaquin Phoenix Joker? No, the worst. The Suicide Squad Joker, the... Oh, a Jared Leto Joker? I guess a Jared Leto Joker. I don't know. It's... But Balkan, I mean... Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> That's where you lose people, I think. So... <laughs> <laughs> but it's a character who loses a lot of people. I oh guess. my word. Mm-hmm. I, I love that his family name is Karambolo. So I don't know if it's a real family name in Bulgaria and Hungary and, and Serbia. But in French, a carambolage is a car crash. <laughs> so Carambolo, it's got a very uh, comic book quality to it in terms I of evoking. <laughs> I never put that together at all. I mean, okay, so in my just absent-mindedness, I didn't take the time to look up what language anybody was speaking, and I spent most of the film trying to struggle it out, because they toss in some English, they toss in some Spanish. It's a mishmash from time to time, because I feel like at moments I'm like, oh yeah, I understand that, that's Latin-based, and then it's like, nope, don't know what they're talking about at all. So I'm happy you kind of established that in the beginning. So let me check uh, the... Entry from Wikipedia, the movie characters speak Romani, Serbian, and Bulgarian. So even what you told was Spanish was probably Romani. That is because so it's, cool. It's a Latin language. I would assume, but they, yes. they do say a few words in English as well. Yeah. It's mostly the vulgar ones. <laughs> Speaking of people who speak a bit of English, 
My favorite bit of the movie remains the old Gregor, the old gangster, with <laughs> a fan of not only Casablanca, but the final scene of Casablanca, who apparently is rewatching again and again. This is the beginning of a very good friendship. <laughs> but I love this scene of kind of Godfather, here are the bootleg whiskey we're making and the original whiskey they're selling. And he tastes both and he's like, hmm. How is this better? Yes. <laughs> I just love the concept <laughs> of criminals doing something fake, but their product is better than the original. I just love that idea. Yeah. No, it was a good scene. Yeah. The, you know, he's committed to quality. He's a quality <laughs> gangster. Unlike the other gangster they introduce us to, who is not a quality gangster and cheats his fellow gangsters. Very true. Right? It's nice to have a contrast. <laughs> I mean, as soon as you meet him, I think it's like the birthday of that little chubby kid who always is eating food. Every time you meet the poor kid, he's so chubby. He has like constant toothpaste yes. face or ice cream face. It's good. Uh, they were my second favorite, so. <laughs> yeah, and they made a good pair. My favorite thing about him as a character, though, is that he's always on his little car. Car? That I think is adorable. We will get, I'm sure, to more of my thoughts on that once we get to the film and tabletop RPG Ooh. section of our little discussion. Ooh. One thing, quite obviously, which I love and was a great, great part of the place this movie had among architecture students in the early 2000s, <laughs> is the soundtrack by Ig Brekovic and Costa Rica. I was saying, okay, this movie didn't quite make it to me this time, but I still had several of the tunes in my head and I've been humming them for a week. <laughs> because, and not just Pitbull Terrier, but Bubamara and all those songs... Yeah, this sort of brass band thing. I just love the soundtrack of this movie. There's been a sound that's repeated throughout the film, and I don't know how to identify it. At some point, Dari plays it in the beginning. It's like this little warbly mouth instrument. Oh, oh, a mouth harp. Sure. I love yes. it. Yes. It's a mouth harp. Love it. Mm -hmm. Because like that sound is just repeated over and over for like multiple reasons. Yeah. And it's just like that to me is like the theme of the film. Yeah. He's not a proficient mouth harp player. He basically can just kind of do the one sound, but he just kind of doings it over <laughs> and over and over. It's good. I didn't know there was yeah. more to it. I just remember that yeah. one of the other students I'm talking about had a mouth harp because of this movie. That is so <laughs> cool! Blow with it. Now, are, are the rumors I've heard true, were those actually dangerous because you can snap your tongue in them and hurt yourself? Did your friend come out injury-free? Yeah, he came out injury-free because he, he picked up juggling instead <laughs> later, but... Uh... Oh, yeah, much, much uh, safer. Uh, okay, so that's just something that my parents yeah. told me so that I yeah. cannot get a mouth harp. That's good to know. Well, it's a pity you didn't see that movie when you were you were a kid. It's true. Anything else to add in terms of did like, did not like? I mean, we definitely touched on the did nots. Uh-huh. Um, yeah. The treatment of Aphrodite is... Abyssal. Uh, it's too yeah. much. I mean... Yeah, terrible. Mm -hmm. The well... It, like, there was a moment where they bust out this hammock, where I'm like, oh, are they just going to let her go swing on a hammock? Naive me. No, and they drop her in a well. Yeah, that was... Did not, <laughs> did not anticipate that. There was no way I could have been prepared. It was a really novel system for abuse. Yeah. It was shocking and strange to see it depicted. Yeah. yeah. I guess, like, my other, like, the toes the not like, and I, and I know it's, like, for the sake of comedy, but, like, wow, the blatant 
display of not just violence but the weapons and like I, I i what i enjoyed about that was the comedy aspect of just like no matter who you're shooting nobody's getting hit like there was that scene in the beginning where the young girl ida with the rifle i don't know if she was shooting oh, yeah. the guy's flower pots or <laughs> him or what but like that is just how do you even go ahead and do that yeah, and that yeah, was just normalized yeah, depiction of being a carefree free spirit by gun safety concerns of not checking who's downrange. In fact, uh, deliberately pointing a loaded rifle toward human beings yep. as a joke and firing it. Yep. And then laughing just like so heartily. <laughs> You're absolutely right. Can you picture the, you know, for the US market, you often you need to adapt a movie. You cannot just show them the original mm-hmm. movie. You need to adapt it a bit. But <laughs> if you made the equivalent movie, and you said it somewhere in the middle of the US and someone is wielding a gun like that and shooting at people. The comedic aspect of it... Oh, it's appalling. ...is pretty much depleted by losing <laughs> the exotic thing. Yeah. But I do love the detail that later you see the same character and is adopted metal-made plant pots <laughs> and he's <laughs> screwing them to the railing of his little boat so they cannot... Didn't see that part, that's amazing. <laughs> cannot be shot anymore. Like, okay, people suffer a lot. Everybody's mean, everybody's terrible, everybody hurt one another in this movie, mm-hmm. but there's sort of a inventive resilience about <laughs> living in that situation, which is mm-hmm. I guess is the charm of the movie. That's definitely it. A, a stubborn commitment to push through it, <laughs> despite how inconvenient it is to get someone ice cream when they're floating in the middle of a pond. Oh my goodness! That scene also stressed me out. I've never had to swim with ice cream in my hand before. And I just watching the struggle. And then... It was a long way out to shore and that ice cream is melting. Yes, it is. Makes you wonder how many times they had to shoot that before the ice cream was just soup. Like... Yeah. Yeah. Never will work. I mean, the grandfather he loves his orchestra is still somehow rope them up in a tree <laughs> the dual orchestra i wrote that down i was i <laughs> it was such a background thing and then like at some point they zoom in and i'm just like shook staring at this orchestra on the tree like that <laughs> i don't understand that where do you put your orchestra <laughs> i mean the tree is the only place i've ever put my orchestra uh, mm. I mean, it's my favorite place now speaking of little <laughs> details i also like how towards the end of the wedding ceremony Dadan has thrown some... So there was juggling too. Maybe my friend picked up juggling because of, of that movie also. He was juggling with grenades and he let several fall off or even threw several at people. Yep. And you see that the orchestra is busy fixing their instruments later. Their instruments. <laughs> By banging yeah. them with hammers and so on. Yeah. They're a great background touch. Yeah. The juggling grenades, really the whole wedding, yeah. is where the movie goes off the rails, right? As it could. Speaking of a violence-prone audience, would you recommend this movie to tabletop role-playing games fans? Personally, I would. I think there were a bunch of interesting themes that gave me ideas in the games that I'm running and might give others too. Such as? Uh, well, getting back to my comment about the first time we see Grandfather, he is on this little teeny motorized car. And then every time we see him, he's still on that little motorized car. And when he's in his home in his bedroom, lying in bed with his sons. The bed is the car, and it's rocking back and forth while he watches, <laughs> once again, Casablanca. Later, when we see him in a car, a larger car, he's still in his smaller car within the larger car, sitting with his kiddos in this car, right? Everywhere we see him, he's uh, with that. And the only thing I could think of was the paladin who absolutely insists 
on bringing his holy mount into every cave and tavern because he took the mountain combat feats and he's gonna dang well get the benefit out of this in all situations. And it turns out uh, you can do it. I love that. You know, it might sound silly. Yeah, I think it's a great reminder for all of us to go with the absurdity, to lean into that as like a style for this character. Maybe that's just a weird world-bending rule for your character that you bring your horse in everywhere. And we're just going to see in some saloon or space bar, your horse, space-based or not, drinking at the bar with you. (laughs) So that's where I kind of struggled to find like a point of relation between this film and tabletop gaming. For example, like my favorite aspect about the film was in fact like that young romance between the two couple. And it was, yeah, for like the most part, it was super wholesome. And I don't play a lot of romance RPGs, so... To be honest, it's the same. I'm like, why Why did I pick that one for role players? I mean, it's just very colorful. It's so... Very colorful. Over the top with details and so on. So when playing... Uh, yesterday, I was playing a game called Sonia and Conan versus the Ninjas, <laughs> which is available in English, but it is by a French author. And apparently, it's very popular in Japan, as I note. But you need to come up with you know, it's a shared storytelling role-playing game. So you come up with a lot of details and you try to build up on them. And some of them are recurring details. I thought this movie was quite good as making these things come back. Yes. That done with this obnoxious dance and his cocaine snorting. The old Gregor with his golden gun and his motorized wheelchair. The entourage of everyone. There's such a cast of characters who are all very colorful. So in terms of a collection of a party. Engaging party and cast of non-playing characters, I think it, it works very well. So that I guess that's how I would sell it to a tabletop RPG fan. Okay, you gave me a point of relation. Have you two either played Kids on Bikes, Teens in Space? Not yet. No! no. It's got like a really wonderful world-building section in the beginning. Where it just asks like really basic questions that help you build the world. And I almost feel like this world, like this absurd universe where, you know, ideas to steal gasoline off trains is a feasible idea. And like where I don't even understand that cruise that passes by. There's two boats that pass by that really confused me. There was one that had a truck and a balcony that was a boat. And that was, that came back. That's the same truck that Grandfather was transported in the very end. I didn't put that together! I loved that truck at first with the little balcony on the side. And I was like, I really want to see that truck again. And we didn't for the whole movie. But then Grandfather's in the back of that truck. Oh, that's so great. Because it was the balcony that stood out to me. Yeah, and that's where our happy couple lived happily ever after. They went on their truck with their little balcony. Oh, Oh, I thought it was a different... Oh, that's cute. (laughs) <laughs> Everyone ends up with the person they stand up yeah. with. Yeah. Including the villain. You, you see, again, the game I played yesterday, when you come up with something, you put it on a index card and you leave it on the table. In our case, it's virtual because we are in lockdown. But you strive to have these elements come back. And yeah, this movie has so many of that coming. Yes. Including the geese, for instance. You have so many geese in the beginning. And in the end. And the end. Yes, it was my favorite moment. Like, you lift the box, and it's a goose. And it was full of, like, a scene transition element. Every time they're moving from place to place, what you get is geese in the way. It's true. Um, I don't know how I can bring this up. No, go ahead. Speaking of bringing back something at the center of the action, 
maybe some warning we should have given at the beginning. So do you consider that animal mistreatment to clean yourself using a goo? Uh, <laughs> you know, the, the geese were not shown to have been harmed by that inconvenience. Yes. They got really gross. Yeah. Uh, geese are already pretty gross. So I consider that kind of a wash. Doesn't look comfortable. He's holding it by the neck and really is going at it. I mean, the actor is... <laughs> yeah, he's really getting at it. Yeah, I did rewind and make sure that was, in fact, a fake goose. I squinted until I was like, okay, okay. The filmmakers did not just pick up a goose. Like, there would have been flat, like, uh, wings and feathers. And feathers pecking. everywhere. Geese yeah. are mean. And they're also not super cooperative. It's not a fake goose, is it? No? Because he throws it... Uh, I think it is. I mean, for movie magic, it's a during the wiping scenes, right? There's a lot of quick cuts of the wiping. So I think the vigorous wiping was with a fake goose, and then when he throws it, it's a real goose. But I could be wrong. That's maybe just the pleasant story I told myself. Yeah, I'm not sure about the standards on the shooting of that movie uh, <laughs> regarding animal protection. Well, considering there were geese everywhere, and you just, like, plowed your way through them regardless, which I feel like is standard for geese, but... It was real extra. That's uh, how they live, so maybe uh, that's how we live to them. Yeah. I guess it would be also a role-playing game with a time-measuring feature which uses a pig eating a car. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that must be so weird for listeners hearing us. So first of all, when we were describing the goose thing, giving a little detail, someone is covered with, uh, what's the... Poo. Yeah, poo. Yeah, all right. That's an okay word. So Dadan is covered with poo following a final prank played on him, and he cleans himself using a goose. So it's nothing worse or better than that, because I feel our description might might have been confusing. Valid. But there's also a pig eating a car who comes back along the movie. I didn't put that together, that the pig was actually like the time teller of the film. I just thought it was like a random scene addition. I'm like, every time, I'm like, why am I watching this pig eating a car? This isn't interesting. <laughs> yeah, no, that makes sense, though. Thanks. so we sort of started answering the question which role-playing game would be great to adapt this movie and thinking of the pig i never played it myself but i was thinking of blades in the dark because i've heard about these clocks so you got different clocks which measure the progress of different schemes and objective and so on so i could see that there would be a clock for gregor getting his son married a clock for Matko trying to make money, mm-hmm. clock for the romance between Ida and Zare, and could have even have a clock for the pig eating the car, because why not? <laughs> no, that would work actually really nicely. It's just like an abstract way to like force the players to keep going, and here are the markers. Once this is complete, like another chunk is done, the game is going to be done once the pig is almost done eating that clock. What do you do? What do you do? The pig is almost done. <laughs> You guys are almost out of car. You've really got to get on the wedding. <laughs> <laughs> I wondered if Starcross wouldn't work. Admittedly, this might be an adaptation with a six-player version of Starcross, where there's three couples who are having independent stories. You keep flashing between different scenes. Ah. But I think depicting the two young leads as lovers who would love to get together and actually get married, but they can't because they're both promised in marriage to these other people. You know, one, the Pitbull Terrier gangster, and the other, the Pitbull Terrier gangster's sister. That would be a tragedy worth playing through. I like that, yeah. Especially since at the beginning, Ida is playing with the feelings of Zare. Yeah. You know, with the ice cream. with the Feeling him out. So Flirting, too. She's enjoying her time with Zare. She's quite a tease. Mm-hmm. And 
the other game system I thought would represent this well would be a hack of Honey Heist called Bread Heist. <gasps> Do tell. Where everyone plays ducks or geese. Ah! I think, honestly, setting a game in this exact same world while this is going on, where you're the geese and you're up to something, and that explains why you're in every scene. Mm-hmm. I think that would be just great. Oh, that's brilliant. I'd love to play that. Specifically playing within that movie, so you had all the characters in the back. So there literally is a clock of the car's running out, you have to steal this bread and get out, or else you're going to be used to clean off the villain. That, no, that, and that's perfect. I feel like this game, or like, Honey Heist would encompass that excellently. Mm-hmm. There's just so much chaos in the background, and then like, you got a mission, how do you do it? Mm-hmm. There's a wedding, you got a boxer in over you, what are you going to do? Resist your goose native <laughs> abilities. Steal that gasoline or bread or whatever. <laughs> Speaking of, I was trying to Google that when I saw the movie and I did not succeed in identifying what it was clearly. But there's this cushion, which at some point I was wondering if it was some kind of ceremonial bread because that's something they do in Eastern countries. I mean, it's, it's a very <laughs> a side of the thing, but yeah, they, they got this sort of cushion they put over the top of the head of the bride and I was like yeah. is that bread? Because if it's bread it's even better with uh, bread heart. Bread. Oh yeah you have to steal the bread. I did not think that it was edible. <laughs> From above the I also thought it was a cushion I but it was a cushion. I like this idea that <laughs> That is super interesting. That it might be a loaf of wedding bread. I will tell Grant Witt about that I'm sure he would be very excited. <laughs> Perfect. Speaking of other games I never played <laughs> a lot Lady Blackbird, I think, would quite work as well. I'm not familiar with that system. Yeah, why? Okay, the little bit I know of it, how... Go ahead, yeah. From my, what I heard is that you... First of all, you improvise things as you go. It's mm-hmm. a game which pretty much encourages you to play without any prep. Yep. So matching this movie, it you know, it sort of goes where it goes and you're, you're not quite sure how it was written. It, it really feels like it was written starting from the start and ending with the end rather than you know, have an overarching structure yeah. and then fill the gaps and so on. So that might explain the tone of the movie, but I think there's also... Lady Blackbird is described as a, a mix of the first Star Wars with Princess Leia, but mixed with Princess Bride. This kind of stories which are made up and there's a pirate which she wants to meet again and possibly marry, so you got the romance aspect in it. It seems quite chaotic, so I'd be curious to, rather than play Lady Blackbird in the space steampunk setting it has, playing it uh, in a, I don't know, what would you <laughs> call that? It's not steampunk, black cat, white cat, it's... No, it wouldn't be. It's like... Roma punk? Ooh. That's an interesting genre that you've just invented right now. Yeah. Because I find that very fitting. Well, thank you very much. <laughs> <laughs> what I found actually, like, interestingly jarring about the scene is also, you know, true to form, I didn't really look up when the date was that this film was made. So I had a hard time reconciling the technology with everybody's living. At some point, you see the older guy, you know, in his wacky car bed, rewinding a film. And I'm like, wait, <laughs> I haven't seen anybody actually sleep in a bed. But meanwhile, they can rewind their VHSs. And, like, you just kind of see signs of, like, oh, oh, technology. And then you see the older ladies, like, I need you to water the telephone pole. Yeah. That's how it's, how it's going to fix my reception. <laughs> they have the technology, and then they don't. <laughs> so I really enjoyed that. So, like, Roma Steampunk encompasses, hmm. like, a little bit of both. 
it really annoyed Persephilia, my wife, as we were watching it, <laughs> because she was like, when was this movie shot and uh, when is it set? And I said, well, it's shot in, uh, in 1998 uh, and it's set in 1998. And <laughs> she was like, 1998 didn't look like that. <laughs> said, yeah. 1998 didn't look like that for all people. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, I was not living at the border <laughs> mm-hmm. between Hungary and Serbia and, and, and Romania. So I don't know. I mean, I, I doubt it looked like oh, that sure. exactly. Yeah, but there's definitely fantastical elements layered on to whatever reality it's, it's at great. the same time te- mm-hmm. technology is not exactly level everywhere and the same so you know we're in lockdown i'm missing some duct tape i order my duct tape on amazon and it's gonna be here tomorrow <laughs> in the world of black cat white cat you need a washing machine you're gonna bow it from matko who got it from a russian seller who offloaded it from a boat and it fell in the river and then matko pulled it out and then sells it to you for the craziest haggled price you could imagine scarcity is not exactly the same over there <laughs> oh, that's very true also that scene i don't think i've ever been more concerned about somebody's back health it's right <laughs> <laughs> So to like lay out the scene to listeners in the beginning, Matko, he is on the boat, whereas the individual he's purchasing this washing machine from is above him. So the gentleman above has to hand the washing machine down and Matko, he just like puts his arms up, grabs it like this is a task that regular people can do. And then, of course, there's a consequence like mm-hmm. you can't actually carry a washing machine down as one person. And like A is back and snapping onto an unstable surface of a boat. In a boat, <laughs> yeah, fr- from another boat, mind yes. you. So they they both have relative motion and rocking. Uh, yeah, that was the first moment. I think I think the purpose of that scene, if there was a meta purpose, was to really establish that this is a comedy or a fantastical film. Yes, right. We're gonna dial this over. Yeah, you might have been playing poker with yourself and losing. Yeah, people might have been looking at binoculars. Your dad might have stolen your sandwich. Like, those are all realistic things. That was the first, like, okay, we're to a level of absurdity moment. Yeah, that was... Uh, which is another good thing to establish in RPGs is negotiate your tone and yes. uh, repeat it to reinforce it. Because Matko is not a physical individual. I mean, the sailor, I guess he's a Russian sailor, so I guess he's kind of muscular, but Matko is all... Very slight. Yeah, he's very dangly and... <laughs> Where was I going with that? <laughs> I don't remember. It's, uh, yeah, the, that movie wasn't simple to make a summary of. Uh, I mean, it was all about dropping what was not essential. Yeah, I'm amazed how much you cut out. Oh, no, you did wonderful. If we could touch on some of like, the side plots, though, which I really enjoyed. The dead granddad? Who wasn't dead? Both of the dead elderly yeah! folks were stashed in the attic. Which is a great role-playing yes. challenge anyway. I mean, that screamed like paranoia or dread, right? Yeah. There's two corpses in the attic. We're just going to keep <laughs> pulling cubes until this whole thing collapses. Exactly. It's another clock mm-hmm. for your blades in the dark. The ice is melting on the corpse of your grandfathers. And the other clock is that and is taking more and more coke. Yes! <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> it's starting to juggle him, guys. Yeah, definitely. I also liked it as a good reinforcement for you know the most traditional of games, traditional with quotes around it, the Dungeons and Dragons. There's nothing that a well-timed resurrection or two won't fix. Ah, uh, yes. That suddenly this is solidly in comedy place where you kind of worried it was going to be a tragedy, right? We're going to find out that there's bodies. Are we just going to ruin this whole wedding? No, no, nope, they both come back. <laughs> Which is a great way to enter the section of this episode dedicated to applications of themes and ideas to tabletop role-playing game. 
So do you want to develop on uh, the well-time resurrection? Yeah. Did you have any well-time resurrection in uh, Lawful and Orderly recently? No, we've only had one player death because we almost never have combat because we were city watch people. And then we were government workers uh, <laughs> constantly transferring around to different government jobs. And now we're just workaday schmoes. What did you do in your game? <laughs> yeah, it's fun. My character just got a new job as a construction assistant foreman. Oh, I it's love thrilling. It. That was like a part of a season arc and is working on adopting a child. Oh. Big stuff, right? Um, but, you know, the, the, the idea of a well-timed uh, resurrection, I've, I've definitely run games where in the very first session due to some bad feeling, I just killed a level one character, just mushed them to death with an animate sawmill right. that crushed somebody <laughs> because it's a sawmill and that's what sawmills do. And thought, oh, gosh, you know, this is really awkward. They're in the wilderness. You know, who are you going to roll up as a character? And so, obviously, they choose the rabbit that they'd use speak with animals on earlier in the day. And now that's a druid or something, which surprised everybody. But, you know, a well-timed resurrection could have solved that. A well-timed resurrection uh, could have solved plenty of exciting moments in my role-playing history. Especially dialing up or down the requirements for that as you see fit. You can make it require more than just a thousand gold piece thing, such as time or dramatic timing. Or you can make it really easy. Just drive a quest forward. Or just they've been licked by a couple of cats. <laughs> yeah, and then bam, right? These mystical cats from some angelic plane of cats. It's my favorite plane of existence. I spent a lot of time there. Oh, right. <laughs> Not to be a dork, but I am absolutely tempted to just toss in a bunch of geese in a game to just see how the players can navigate around something like that. You know, you introduce it as just kind of like a passive thing. They're just in the background until they start to obstruct your uh, journey forward. Because like, I don't really know what I would want to comfortably take out to be able to use in a game that I play. Like, I do run a variety of games. I'm part of like the Magpie Curated Play Program. I run Zombie Worlds. Bluebeard's Bride, things like that, but none of those <laughs> I can necessarily pull elements at the exception of coked up grenade juggling man. <laughs> I think there's always a place for that. I don't know what it says about the magpie games, but <laughs> okay. <laughs> but you, know, you got a good point with the geese because it's something which is often lost to people, but you know, knowing people who own geese. These are very good animals to guard the place. They are. Because they're very noisy. They got a very good uh, ear. And they're kind of vicious. <laughs> I mean, maybe not like a raging dog, but if they come at you, it's quite bad. So that would be an original encounter. You, oh, you go around uh, the property of that criminal. Uh, uh, he seems to be a, kind of a weird guy driving around in his little motorized wheelchair. Okay, we check up the security. You don't see much security. There's some camera system, but uh, I mean, even if it's cyber, there's some old school camera system. Yeah, there's animals all over the place. Yeah, there are pigs and geese and stuff. Okay, easy peasy. We go in and, and then you get the geese, but <laughs> destroy you. What place. do you do? Yeah. Nobody is going to fight geese. Let me tell you. <laughs> I am trying to do the geese. It's more like a, a pig, but. Uh... <laughs> They're tough to navigate because they're like a swarm also. You know, you're trying to move through them. You cannot go in a straight line. You you sort of go in between and they, they fly. They fly at your face. And let's be real. If you're Canadian, you've had at least one bad goose experience and you know not to mess with them. So, <laughs> so coming back to the uh, grandfather who I loved, I was reading a few reviews and 
a rather long thesis about the movie and its representation of Roma. But uh, there was a team of the romanticization of criminals. And it's kind of a classic, you know, the chaotic good character in Dungeons and & Dragons and many role-playing games. We do like to romanticize criminals in tables of role-playing games. Oh, absolutely. If you're not a criminal, what are you even doing? Absolutely. Except for you! <laughs> yeah, there's, yeah, we're... <laughs> Our game's the only one where we're, we, we are part of the machine, the system, <laughs> rather than bucking against it, right? We're not the scrappy rebels or the heroes. We're just trying to get through another day's work. I love it. You work for the man. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Yeah, but it's, it's very rare. Everyone wants to play the scrappy heroes with nothing to lose, right? Oh, yeah. Everybody wants to play the people who stand to gain a substantial amount from something. Oh, a criminal amount, right? Yeah. <laughs> On the topic of wealth and criminal acts... I think this is a great example of double-crossing the party in role-playing games. And a great example of successfully double-crossing the party in that it did not disrupt the party. The party's still together, right? The the Porsche-mo, uh, what is his name, Matthias? Matko. The Porsche-mo Matko, who's been cheated by his friend umpteen times, is still his friend. And that's the kind of commitment you really need to stick together to a role-playing party if you're going to allow, like, inner-party cheating. Because <laughs> you want the plot to follow you all, and so... You have to be able to just slap each other's backs and go back to gambling with each other. <laughs> <laughs> it does raise a question for Matko. I just left the campaign because I was not satisfied with, yeah, it was not my thing the way it was run. Everybody else had fun, but I didn't. And part of the reason was that the beat structure, it was downbeat, downbeat, downbeat. And if you play Matko, that's a lot of downbeats. I don't think this guy's got want to beat yeah, it's, of the whole movie. His is the saddest violin yeah. the whole show. It really is. But it's so self-inflicted, which is why I feel absolutely zero sympathy for him. It's true. None. Yeah. And, <laughs> and, and he's like oblivious to it, right? He's yeah. just living through it. It's his own rolling disaster. Yeah, but you see him. He's just like going through his dad's pockets looking for his accordion money. <laughs> like, where's the money you sold the cement factory for? It's just not... <laughs> I know it was sad, like, we're supposed to feel sad for him, but I, I didn't. <laughs> yeah, I don't think we're supposed to feel sad for him. It's super slimy. The only upbeat for him is when he gets alone. But he immediately puts it to the worst possible yeah, use. Yeah. <laughs> the car scene, yes! Yeah, but not even before that, he's in his car, so his son is driving the cabriolet car. Mm -hmm. Convertible. And he's standing singing. Mm -hmm. It's got no top. He's got stacks of cash. <laughs> yeah, just blowing in the wind, liable to be ripped away. <laughs> yeah. They're very cavalier about cash yes. in this show. That also really stressed me out, too, because I, I don't know what the currency was and, like, how much equated what, like, what the worth was, but everybody always had the stack of cash and they were all trying to, trying to be discreet. Meanwhile, like, there was a scene on the boat between, like, the grandpa. Yeah. Yeah, and there is a huge band in the back. And homie's just like, I'm just going to turn my shoulder and they won't see this wad of cash. <laughs> of course they will. Of course they will. The band is different. <laughs> they live for the music, so. <laughs> They're a loyal band. Oh, uh, they are. They are. <laughs> Probably euros or maybe it's still Dutch marks or something like that. <laughs> I like the inclusion of stuff from movies. Of course, there's Casablanca, but there's a, almost a... 2001 moment with the boat and the waltz which is called the Blue Danube River I love the 
those Germans <laughs> dancing on a boat would have thought of that. I thought that was really, <laughs> really super cute. <laughs> Yeah, that was like an outside moment to me, where that seems like something you would see in an RPG versus like a, a real-life moment. <laughs> so uh, appealing to outside powers for help, uh, was that one yours again, uh, Scott? Uh, again, is it something yeah. you did in Lawful and Orderly, or where you work for the man? Do you still need to uh, appeal to outside powers still? I was thinking of everything from the cleric praying to a deity for help, to the party going to the local archduke first for a quest, and then later to turn in a favor because they're in real bad trouble because while they were on that quest, they burned down several farms or something horrible happened. And so now they need to beg this person for absolution from this horrible situation they've gotten themselves in due to their own comedic, hilarious errors. And that to me just screamed Matteo? Matco? Matco. And that to me just screamed Matco going to his grandfather for this loan. You come to someone, and then we have a lot of establishing shots of that he has a bunch of gangsters in his own liquor place, and a support beams full of money for some reason, <laughs> even though that makes them very not good as support. I didn't know they were support beams! And so we, we establish this as a very high, powerful character, and he just buys them off. Here's a wad of cash, I never want to see you again. But that's kind of this scene that I see play out in role-playing games repeatedly, where the party comes up to somebody who is much more powerful than them, not in terms of combat ability, but in terms of socio-political status, which is not an arena in which the party traditionally competes. Maybe Blades in the Dark, but not most role-playing systems. It forces a very unique sort of interaction from the party to this figure that is not their normal interaction. You were trying to say something? Oh, I was just laughing that I didn't realize the money was held in the beams. Like, that's where it was. I couldn't figure out where they were navigating. So I did not put that together, which just like that, seriously, there's just so many times you can just build on the absurdity of this universe. Mm -hmm. I do really enjoy it. I think that's what really brought me in was just, it's all these small things here and there. Like even like buying off the nurse so the band can play in the hospital. Yep. I love that moment. Yeah. <laughs> the change in her face. She was just like perfectly okay with it. Clap it along afterward. <laughs> yep. That's great. <laughs> the way you put things with the appealing to outside powers just made me realize how much this movie reminds me of a Shakespearean play. Hmm. You got the lovers, you got the chaos. Yes! You got different side stories. It ends in a wedding. Yep. You know, it, it's a bit like a Midsummer Night Dream. Mm -hmm. You got the king at the end. There's a lot of chaos and stuff happening. And then the Oberon and uh, Titania comes back to the end and put things back in order and say, oh, this was very entertaining. Thank you very much. Greg has yeah, he's got this role of showing up. I mean, it reminds you know, stuff like scenes like in... Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves also. You got Chen Conry at the end arriving and say, oh, and I'm the king and now I'm sorting stuff yeah. out. Goodbye, thank you, you get married. Yep. Yeah, just just instantly everything's straightened out and the sheriff's on a, on a cart and yeah, yeah, it was, it, you're right. There's a lot of very similar echoes there. In the subject, I raised a deep subject, a subject which we've been failing at film studies with our first episode and we already had to make a man for that. The representation of Roma. So I've been reading a little bit about this because that was kind of puzzling me as I was watching the movie. So the director is not Roma, but apparently spent a lot of time in Sarajevo. He's from Sarajevo as a, a teenager and he spent a lot of time with Roma there. And uh, apparently the movie is appreciated by Romas, but yeah, there's been debates regarding... Uh, Oh, it pictures those communities, this movie. Uh, 
to be honest, my own take is that it's so alien and foreign that I did not even associate it with Roma communities. For me, it was just a place somewhere in the world which is completely remote for me and I, I, I didn't have any connection with it. So I did not even really associate it like, oh, that's a, that's a nice Bulgarian stereotype you got there. No, that's fair. I, I don't think I picked up. I also don't know any of the stereotypes. Um, the only ones that I, I don't want to say I enjoyed or related with, but like the mother, Ida's mother, she reminds me of like an old Spanish mom that like one of my friends had who would always try to hit us with her slipper or like an old Arab mom who would be throwing things at us if we're like being obnoxious kids. The mother was a very traditional. Like, I'm Jamaican-Canadian, so, like, I, I've always called these moms, like, they're my brown moms. I love my brown moms. Like, they're the ones who will cause violence, like, they will do violence, but they do it out of love. Aww. And that was very much like Ida's mom. There was a moment in the kitchen where, you know, they were cutting and she was just like, do your thing, do your thing. And then Ida's bawling her eyes out and the mom turns around and just is like, oh, are you crying over the boy? He's like, oh, it's okay. Like, come here. That's, that's beautiful. Like, that's, that's... A cultural mom moment to me. Hmm. Yeah, she comes around. That I think it's it's her granddaughter. I'm not, I'm not sure. Is it her granddaughter? I'm not sure anymore because that then mentioned something about them going to Sweden and. But at that moment, it was very touching because she was kind of an antagonist, and at that point, she comes around to be supportive of whatever Ida wants to do. It was really wholesome, and like that to me, like that's. <laughs> It's like a brown mom moment. Like, they are going to be the hardest on you, but, like, they will always be there, like, when you need them. So, like, that was the only, almost, like, stereotypical, I guess, subject matter that I could attribute, whereas everything else was kind of beyond me, personally. When I read comments about that, it's mainly what depicting... And it's actually, it's in the movie. You've got a scene when uh, Dadan gets extremely mad uh, in an unjustified manner, as always, with Dadan to one of the ladies following him because according to him she's being racist towards Matko and not treating him as she would treat someone from from a, a different background but i think it's mainly the idea of roma's being uh conniving and criminally minded oh, and uh, okay. schemings and so on yeah their representation in media is often very unfair no, absolutely. Uh, but it's, it's interesting. And thank you, Caleb, for doing the background legwork, reading about the actual origin and takes and how a potentially ill-depicted community reacts themselves to this film, because they're the ones who deserve to have a voice in their representation here. And so thank you for doing the background work and surfacing what you could discover about their experience. It's just, it's, it's part of the thing which took me out a bit of the movie this time because I had not seen it in a decade, maybe two. So, you know, all the stuff, victimization of women, the treatment of ethnicities, uh, this kind of notions, you know, as you were saying at the beginning, the scary thing about these things is how a decade and a half ago, me personally, and probably a lot of, well, without a doubt, a lot of people and, and still today, just watch this and they, it doesn't register. It just seems normal. I can't imagine watching this and not picking up on the misogyny and just like blatant violence and racism. It's okay. So like, I don't know if the racism is always blatant because I, it was a little bit in the background, if I had to guess. 
but like woof the misogyny is very very up in front yeah yeah no to be honest it did not register the first i don't know seven times i saw that movie I, i mean it's not like i did not notice it but it's again it's it's part of the way the medium especially in europe is treated uh, mm. i mean we, we had this sort of discussion already with delicatess and the reaction of even my parents if i would bring up the subject i would say well it's just for good love nobody gets hurt mm-hmm. yeah. oh yeah but it was funny yeah. i didn't find it that funny <laughs> mm. i guess again what still works with this one not not the misogyny but going back to the ethnicities again it's it's such a melting pot of so many things the references to germans russians bulgaria hungaria stuff like again going back to the old gangster he's got this big gold pendant and it features a david star what i assume is a christian cross and the crescent from uh, the muslim faith i didn't see that and, uh, i find this pendant sums up sort of the cultural feel of the movie, which is it's the middle of nowhere, but at the same time, it's at the crossroad of so many stuff going on. And all of that is put in a stew together and to the point where they're, they're beyond recognition, or at least maybe you can pick up this or this influence. But the border between them is extremely blurry. You cannot tell what nationality exactly this or that person is. You just can't make assumptions uh, of what might influence them. No, I mean, that is definitely a really good observation. And again, that's where my struggle, like, what language are they speaking? I think I know what they, uh, what he said, or like, maybe what she said sounded familiar to me, but like, nope, nope, didn't actually know. (laughs) Even just like it says in the description of the movie, they speak Serbian, Bulgarian, and Romani, around the time of the movie, it would have still been called Yugoslavian rather than Serbian. So even in time, the way you would describe the movie and why it's set has changed because that 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 environment uh, has changed a lot since then. I think that's really cool. And while we've talked a lot about the negative representations that we've seen in this movie, there was one really positive representation that I think I should call out, and that's the equal participation for a character with a different mobility. The grandpa gangster, who was effectively a wheelchair user, it was a wheeled chair, a wheeled bed in this case, that was in no way limiting for him in this film. He could get everywhere into every scene, and he could interact with everyone in a normal way, and I think that's valuable. It was already uh, in the back of my mind, but it really made me want to play a character with a disability like that. I recently played a game called Becoming. I like the premise... There's three game masters who are taking turns are doing things. They're playing the, I don't know what they call it in English, uh, the park. You know, in Hercules, the, or Greek mythology, not just uh, Disney movies, but you got those lady characters who weave the strand of destiny. The fates? The fates. Yeah, the fates. You got three players who play the fates and the one last player who plays the hero of the story. And, uh, there's just one hero. The fates take turns doing different stuff. The player playing the hero just plays the hero. And the premise is that the hero cannot fail (laughs) at what he does. But the idea of the game is to make the hero suffer. So the the fates have to come up with difficult choices. And we played it once. I was one of the fates. And I was thinking I would really like to play the hero. 
and one of the playset is a post-apocalyptic one. And I was thinking I would really like to play a character who would have to move around in a post-apocalyptic setting hmm. with a wheelchair and, and maybe do some physical feats without being able to use his legs. But I thought it was interesting and it was enabled by this game by the fact that the hero could not fail, but the fates were there to make the situation difficult. It could make some uh, rather interesting and unique scenes being pursued by, I don't know, zombies or scavengers and having to describe and to find ways of making it work uh, with a disability in mind. I think it's something which doesn't happen enough in role-playing games, for sure. Mm-hmm. I, uh, Ah, that'd be brilliant. I played a, a cleric once in 5th edition D&D, and so we start with heavy armor efficiency, and I took heavy armor master. And the narrative around this was that this cleric was very old and frail, and I played this heavy armor as it was actually the armor itself, not any skill or trait of the character. And instead of legs, it had a massive metal skirt and then wheels underneath it and uh, treated it almost as a walker for this very powerful combatant when standing still who had a very low movement and abysmal strength, you know, uh, terrible climbing and stuff. And that was it was it was a, a really fun and liberating character to play. I enjoyed the interaction with the party of like the occasional climbing things where that would turn into a very off scene production of how to bring our friend with us. Right. And include him. Yeah. I enjoyed the experience of, of being in the armor or outside of it. And then that kind of the frailty and the strength is, is kind of this duality in the character. And to speak very generally, I think role-playing is, is a great opportunity to exercise active empathy for people who have different situations as you by attempting to wrap your mind into performing them. Yeah, absolutely. Now, everybody has such like wonderful, recognizable qualities in this movie. Like old Gregor in his motorized chair. The sun and his, I don't know if it was more of his hair or his mustache or just like the hulking aspect that was really. Yeah, all of those, the, the very low camera angle they always gave him, they really layered well. Yeah. No, they did a good job with that. And I was just kind of scrolling over my notes and I had written a lot of things that made like every character was very identifiable. Even the ones, like the three, um, hmm. oh, what is his name? The cronies of Dadan? Yeah, yeah, the gentleman with the book? Yes. You always knew who he was because he was reading a book. (laughs) And the other two, they had identifying qualities, but I didn't write them down because I thought the book guy was the funniest, but... Mm -hmm. The sisters at that also, there was Aphrodita who was the short sister, there was the sister with the bad teeth. Yeah, I was going to say, that's how I remember her. (laughs) She also cried louder, so... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I wonder if it was the thing of the third that she had a high-pitched voice or something like that, and they were, she was always... Ah, ah, ah. Oh, there was supposed to be equality, because like when, when you meet them, you know, they're introduced as, this is that sister, this is that sister, and they're mm-hmm. a smurfette. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Even the sisters are mean to Aphrodita, that's, that's terrible. They're horrible to her. The movie did a really good job minimizing her existence, and I hate to use that word. Even when she's on scene, they do a job, like they do a really, really good job of just like taking her away. Most of the time, she's encompassed by this giant frumpy dress mm-hmm. that it's just like Swallowed. half of her face that you see. And then the rest of the time, I mean, like later on in the film, it's just her feet. <laughs> like, yeah, it's so cute, the feet and the tree trunk. Oh no, the tree trunk, I died when I saw that. <laughs> it's got a very fairy tale thing going on and mm-hmm. and the way young Gregor lifts her with just one hand yes. which is hilarious because 
young Gregor he's got this towering presence but it doesn't look like muscular or especially physical but he's just very impressive mm-hmm. yeah he's he's just so tall and a good shot also again. yeah <laughs> just like old Gregor well, old Gregor is even better Oof. old Gregor yeah. so good I think that's it anything else to, to add I feel like I have one comment about the film that like really bothered me it's so small okay there was a scene and it was so beautiful it's like the sunflower scene where like the two lovers are like running around and like there's the kiss and it's so cute Mm -hmm. and then it's ruined when zari has to smell her underwear (laughs) and like i was so there for the scene and then he does that and i'm like well i no longer rooting for you (laughs) (laughs) that was that was a lot it's uh, it's european love (laughs) Yeah, really, their, their romance was a lot. It was like, oh, sweet young teen romance. And oh, my God, are they having sex? That, yeah. no, I've been raised by Puritans, and I didn't realize that until right now. <laughs> is, he, is he touching her boobs while they're riding that uh, motorcycle? <gasps> yes! yes! Right? Okay, I thought that was kind of cute, but... <laughs> Because you look over, and I thought for sure he was just like holding her around the waist, and I thought to myself, like, oh, that's really cute. And then she removes his hands, and she he puts them back. I'm like, oh no, he's holding onto her chest. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that's yeah, yeah. It was it was. Uh, what, what's nice with this couple, it doesn't look attractive. They look, you know, it's not this. I always complain about that. The cast looking like they're here for a shampoo commercial. They look like people you would see in the street, and you're like, eh. yes, yeah. It's true. It was. They weren't selling, like, sex appeal. It was, like, the intimacy they were sharing in those scenes wasn't necessarily, like, a sexual intimacy. It was just, like, a personal relationship intimacy. Mm -hmm. It was just a casual closeness that you get in really meaningful relationships. And that was lovely to see underscored. Yeah. Yeah. Like, young love, almost. Hmm. I mean, it reminded me, you know, the awkwardness of summer love stories. You know, when you go mm-hmm. on holidays and you, you meet someone, you're a teenager, you're extremely awkward and you go fetch an ice cream to, to impress <laughs> the girl or do stupid physical feats. I mean, he's a bit stalky, but it comes across, I guess, yes, as, you he's know. a bit stalky. <laughs> In the beginning, he's just watching her and she knows that. And everybody knows he's just kind of Creeping creepy. But like, uh, mm-hmm. I don't know. There's a, there's a. I'm glad they graduated from creepy quick. Yes, yes. And there's also that terrible expression where it's like, if you're good looking, you can be a little creepy. Um, mm-hmm. Like he toes that line where like, is it creepy or is it endearing? Still kind of creepy, but we're going to frame it as endearing and go from there. Mm-hmm. I really like the scene on the boat with the ice cream. And uh, I love uh, the friend of Ida. You know, they're, they're taking the sun together on the boat. Mm-hmm. I don't know. It, it really felt like, you know, when I was a teenager, girls hanging out and you're, you're, you're trying to engage with them and you, you don't know quite know how. They're whispering about you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. They're having fun about you. And, and then she flees away in a floating uh, tire. A little inner tube. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I did enjoy that the friend was very plus size and it was not brought up. Mm-hmm. It just was. Yep. And her bathing suit was super sparkly and kind of cute. But besides <laughs> the point. <laughs> well, in terms of body type, this movie is really... Great. Yeah, you, you got the whole, bro- the whole range. The whole range and it's not addressed really. Uh, mm-hmm. I guess the only one which is sort of treated as a joke is the second son of Gregor. 
<laughs> yeah. Ooh, uh, eats ice cream all the time. That becomes a trope. The kid's just eating all the time, yeah. Finishing on the trope, something I found out today looking up the song. One of the songs that I like is Bubamara. So, Kichirare Bubamara. And I found out that actually Bubamara means sunflower. So, it's a motif again oh. with where Ida and Zare had uh, their little underwear sniffing moment. <laughs> yep, that's how we will refer to it now. <laughs> <laughs> You know, sunflower field, I've been in a couple. I've never been in that kind of circumstance, but doesn't look comfortable. No, no. There's something about laying on dirt that just doesn't appeal, you know? Mm. Surrounded by stocky, itchy sunflowers. Yeah, no, no allergies. Allergies. This happens. <laughs> Pollen? Mm. It's a disaster. In general, any kind, it's very tropey to have a. A agricultural setting to love affairs. Oh, totally. Yeah. And I'm here for Hay it. Hay and all of that. Grass, middle of the forest. Yeah. Not cool. <laughs> Not cool. <laughs> so unsanitary. Even the beach. I mean, Anakin Skywalker would agree, but yeah, you know, the <laughs> so beach unsanitary. is the sand. <laughs> sand gets everywhere. Everywhere. Uh. <laughs> all right. I think we covered everything. We almost forgot to mention the underwear sniffing. No, Thank that's you. done. Hello to people listening to us on a speaker at work. Uh, <laughs> before goodbye, I wanted to harken back to our previous episode about delicatessen because I did mention something and apparently it's maybe happening. I said that I would like a Batman with a low budget or at least low stake, one night with the Dark Knight. And I don't know what you think, Scott, but I think the next movie might be closer to that. Uh, you know, it might be. So, one night with the Dark Knight coming to us. Maybe one day on film studies. <laughs> so, on this good way, thanks, Classroom, for your participation today. You can find the RPG Academy on Twitter at the RPG Academy, no underscore, no dots, nothing. And you will find there all our various shows, the faculty meetings, the detention, the show and tell, the trials of. I don't know if you recorded any recently, Scott. There's always new fun ones coming out. I don't remember which ones were recorded or released in what order, so I won't commit to anything, but they're all great. They take their piss. They take their piss like film studies. And uh, yeah, there's always so good stuff on the feed of the Rollist podcast. And both the Rollist and the RPG Academy, we do this out of our passion for the hobby, but we do have expense. And any kind of support, no matter how modest via Patreon, helps us do more, not only pay for our expense, but do more projects, travel, improve our broadband, uh, buy new microphones, or God knows what. So please do go on Patreon. There's a lot of goodies for you there. Would you like to tell us all goodbyes and where people can find you if you wish to be found? It's lovely to see you all again here in the classroom. Everybody loves film studies. Uh, you can uh, listen to my super weirdo little unpopular fun podcast at, at Nowsayers. That's our Twitch channel name, website name, various places, Twitter. Otherwise, you can just keep tuning in to Calum because he's great. Oh, thank you so much. Well, heck, this has been absolutely wonderful. I mean, I honestly could have gone for another hour and like just talked to you about how stressful it was watching all the broken dishes in that film, too. So many dishes. <laughs> it's fine. <laughs> Everybody walks on tables. 
tables. <laughs> Not broken dishes. Yeah, the jumping on the table, all mm-hmm. the plates. And you're There's like, no time to go around the table. Who cleans just- the glass all the time? Like that water just must be like shards of glass. I, I just. Oh, yeah. Okay, one thing actually I was wondering. <laughs> I thought it was really dreadful the idea of someone speaking out in a wedding of what individual had <laughs> gifted to the bride and the groom until their value. <laughs> I take that as a cultural thing because that also, like, let's see who paid the most for you in the wedding. Like, who got you the most expensive vacuum cleaner? <laughs> I assume that was just a super tacky thing, right? Wasn't that underscoring the kind of back to Coke nosed in his lovely house that he showed his friend pictures of in his limousine? Like, that's. I yeah. Oh gosh, that film was so great. It was just so absurd. If you need more absurdity in your life, you can find me on Twitter and or Instagram as at bzelda. If you're interested in podcast stuff, at the broadswords on Twitter or Instagram, or at no show radio or Twitch. You know, I do stuff, play video games, or or Magpie Official. Any of those, you can find me in the things that I do. Some are absurd, some aren't. And you do so much. Been That's trying great. to be busy. It's kind of wild. I was thinking to myself, when I recorded film studies with you the first time, Daddy Katasen, my intro outro was like, hello, I'm Bianca. And now, <laughs> two years later, I've got like this paragraph. It's really cool. <laughs> Very fun. It's nice. Well deserved. Well, you know what? what's missing to your resume? Hmm, what's that? It's picking a movie, hosting an episode of Film Studies, and editing it. That would be great. I don't know how to edit. You can learn. (laughs) I could stream really well, but my editing skills... If you ever need anybody to host a stream for you, 10 out of 10, I can do it. Editing, 0 out of 10. Well, we all look forward to the next Film Studies, that is the three of us, in a year or two, where base credits include (laughs) several minor motion pictures personally edited... Doing the Foley music and the score mm-hmm. and the whole mm-hmm. process. The whole Star wipes, yeah. all of it. The credits will just be my name. Amazing. Thank you very much. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Cheers, everyone. Bye. Assistant Junior Production Crit. <laughs> Bye. Cheers. Yeah.